Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, ratchetandratchet@gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 30. The rain that had threatened to wash out the morning funeral finally rinsed the afternoon. But by nightfall, the Oregon sky was clean and dry. From horizon to horizon spread an infinity of icy stars, and at the center of them hung a bright sickle moon as silver as steel. Shortly before 10 o'clock, Junior returned to the cemetery and left his suburban where the Negro mourners had parked earlier in the day. His was the only vehicle on the service road. Curiosity brought him here. Curiosity and a talent for self-preservation. Earlier, Vanadium had not come to Naomi's graveside as a mourner. He had been there as a cop, on business. Perhaps he had been at the other funeral on business too. After following the blacktop 50 feet, Junior headed downhill through the close-cropped grass between the tombstones. He switched on his flashlight and trod cautiously, for the ground sloped unevenly and, in places, remained soggy and slippery from the rain. The silence in the city of the dead was complete. The night lay breathless, stirring not one whisper from the stationed evergreens that stood sentinel over generations of bones. When he located the new grave, approximately where he guessed that it would be. He was surprised to find a black granite headstone already set in place, instead of a temporary marker painted with the name of the deceased. This memorial was modest, neither large nor complicated in design. Nevertheless, often the carvers in this line of business followed days after the morticians, because the stones to which they applied their craft demanded more labor and less urgency than the cold bodies that rested under them. Junior assumed the dead girl had come from a family of stature in the Negro community, which would explain the stone carver's accelerated service. Vanadium, according to his own words, was a friend of the family. Consequently, the father was most likely a police officer. Junior approached the headstone from behind, circled it, and shunned the flashlight on the chisel facts. Beloved daughter and sister, Seraphim Ethionema White. Stunned. He switched off the flashlight. He felt naked, exposed, caught. In the chilly darkness, his breath plumed visibly, frosted by moonlight. The rapidity and raggedness of his radiant exhalations would have marked him as a guilty man if witnesses had been present. He hadn't killed this one, of course. A traffic accident. Wasn't that what Vanadium had said? Ten months ago, following tendon surgery for a leg injury, Seraphim had been an outpatient at the rehab hospital where Junior worked. She was scheduled for therapy three days a week. Initially, when told his patient was a Negro, Junior had been reluctant to serve as her physical therapist. Her program of rehab required mostly structured exercise to restore flexibility and to gain strength in the affected limb, but some massage would be involved as well, which made him uncomfortable. He had nothing against men or women of color. Live and let live. One earth, one people, you know, all of that. On the other hand, one needed to believe in something. Junior didn't clutter his mind with superstitious nonsense or allow himself to be constrained by the views of bourgeois society or by his smug concepts of right and wrong, good and evil. From Zed, he had learned that he was a sole master of his universe. Self-realization through self-esteem was his doctrine. Total freedom and guiltless pleasure were the reward of faithful adherence to his principles. What he believed in, the only thing he believed in, was Junior Kane, and in this he was a fiercely passionate believer, devout unto himself. 
Consequently, as Caesar Zed explained, when any man was clear-headed enough to cast off all the false faiths and inhibiting rules that confuse humanity, when he was sufficiently enlightened to believe only in himself, he would be able to trust his instincts, for they would be free of society's toxic views, and he would be assured of success and happiness if always he followed these gut feelings. I know y'all think that this book was written recently because this sounds so much like just toxic masculinity and all the things that go on in the world nowadays and things of that nature. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. This book came out in the year 2000. I know that sounds so, and yet it sounds so, I know, right? Instinctively, he knew he should not give massages to Negroes. He sensed that somehow he would be physically or morally polluted by this contact. He couldn't easily refuse the assignment. Later that year, President Lyndon Johnson, with strong backing from both the Democratic and the Republican parties, was expected to sign the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And currently, it was dangerous for clear-headed believers in the primacy of self to express their healthy instincts, which might be mistakenly perceived as racial prejudice. He could be fired. Fortunately, just as he was about to declare his gut feelings to a superior and risk dismissal, he saw his potential patient. At 15, Seraphim was breathtakingly beautiful, in her own way as striking as Naomi. An instinct told Junior that the chance of being physically or morally polluted by her was negligible. Like all women past puberty and on this side of the grave, she was attracted to him. She never told him as much, not in words, but he detected this attraction in the way that she looked at him in the tone that she used when she spoke his name. Throughout three weeks of therapy, Seraphim revealed countless small but significant proofs of her desire. During the girl's final appointment, Junior discovered she would be home alone that same night. Her parents had a function she wasn't required to attend. She appeared to reveal this inadvertently, quite innocently. However, Junior was a bloodhound when it came to smelling seduction, regardless of how subtle the scent. Later, when he showed up at her door, she pretended surprise and uneasiness. He realized like so many women, Seraphim wanted it, asked for it, yet had no place in her self-image to accommodate the truth that she was sexually aggressive. She wanted to think of herself as shy, demure, virginal, as innocent as a minister's daughter ought to be, which meant that to get what she wanted, she required Junior to be a brute. He was happy to oblige. As it turned out, Seraphim was a virgin. This thrilled Junior. He was inflamed also by the thought of ravishing her in her parents' house and by the kinky fact that their house was a parsonage. Better yet, he was able to have the girl to the accompaniment of her father's voice, which was even kinkier than doing her in the parsonage. When Junior rang the bell, Seraphim had been in her room, listening to a tape of the sermon her father was composing. The good reverend usually dictated the first draft, which his daughter then transcribed. For three hours, Junior went at her mercilessly to the rhythms of her father's voice. The reverend's presence was deliciously perverse and stimulating to a sense of erotic invention. When Junior was finished, there was nothing sexual the seraphim could ever do with the man that she had not learned from him. She struggled, wept, pretended disgust, faked shame, swore to bring the police down on him. Another man, not as highly skilled at reading women as Junior, might have thought the girl's resistance was genuine, that her charges of rape were sincere. Any other man might have backed off, but Junior was neither fooled nor confused. Once satiated, what she desired was a reason to deceive herself into believing that she was not a slut, that she was a victim. She didn't really want to tell anyone what he had done to her. Instead, she was asking him, 
indirectly but indisputably, to provide her with an excuse to keep their passionate encounter secret, an excuse that would also allow her to continue to pretend that she had not begged for everything he had done to her. Because he genuinely liked women and hoped always to please them, always to be discreet and chivalrous and giving, Junior did as she wished, spinning a vivid account of the grisly vengeance he would take if ever Seraphim told anyone what he had done to her. Vlad the Impaler, the historical inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula, thank you Book of the Month Club, could not have imagined bloodier or more horrific tortures and mutilations than those that Junior promised to visit upon the Reverend, his wife, and Seraphim herself. Pretending to terrorize the girl excited him, and he was perceptive enough to see that she was equally excited by pretending to be terrorized. He added verisimilitude to his threats by concluding with a few hard punches where they wouldn't show, in her breast and belly. And then he went home to Naomi, to whom he'd been married at that time less than five months. To a surprise, when Naomi expressed an interest in romance, Junior was a bull again. He would have thought he left his best stuff at Reverend Harrison White's parsonage. He loved Naomi, of course, and never could deny her. Although he had been especially sweet to her that night, if he had known that they would have had less than a year together before fate tore her from him, he might have been even sweeter. As Junior stood at Seraphim's grave, his breath smoked from him in the still night air, as though he were a dragon. He wondered if the girl had talked, perhaps, reluctant to admit to herself that she had yearned for him to do everything that he had done. She had been slowly inflamed by guilt, until she convinced herself that she had, indeed, been raped. Psychotic little bitch. Did this explain why Thomas Vanadium suspected Junior when no one else did? If the detective believed that Seraphim had been raped, his natural desire to exact vengeance for his friend's daughter might motivate him to commit the relentless harassment that Junior had endured now for four days. On second thought, no. If Seraphim had told anyone she had been raped, the police would have been at Junior's doorstep in minutes, with a warrant for his arrest. No matter that they would have no proof. In this age of high sympathy for the previously oppressed, the word of a teenage Negro girl will have greater weight than Junior's clean record, fine reputation, and heartfelt denials. Vanadian was surely unaware of any connection between Junior and Seraphim White. And now, the girl could never talk. Junior remembered the very words the detective had used. They say she died in a traffic accident. They say. As usual, Vanadium had spoken in a monotone, putting no special emphasis on those two words. Yet Junior sensed the detective harbored doubts about the explanation of the girl's death. Maybe every accidental death was suspicious to Vanadium. His obsessive hounding at Junior might be a standard operating procedure. After too many years investigating homicides, after too much experience of human evil, maybe he had grown both misanthropic and paranoid. Junior could almost feel sorry for this sad, stalky, haunted detective, deranged by years of difficult public service. The bright side was easy to see. If Vanadium's reputation amongst other cops and amongst prosecutors was that of a paranoid, a pathetic chaser after phantom perpetrators, his unsupported belief that Naomi was murdered would be discounted, and if every death was suspicious to him, then he would quickly lose interest in Junior and move on to a new enthusiasm, harassing some other poor devil. Supposing that this new enthusiasm was an attempt to uncover skullduggery in Seraphim's accident, then the girl would be doing Junior a service even after her demise. Whether or not the traffic accident was an accident, Junior hadn't had anything to do with it.
Gradually, he grew calm. His great frosty exhalations diminished to a diaphanous dribble that evaporated two inches from his lips. Reading the dates on the headstone, he saw that the minister's daughter had died on the 7th of January, the day after Naomi had fallen from the tree tower. If ever asked, Junior would have no trouble accounting for his whereabouts on that day. He switched off the flashlight and stood silently for a moment, paying his respects to Seraphim. She had been so sweet, so innocent, so supple, so exquisitely proportioned. Ropes of sadness bound his heart, but he didn't cry. If their relationship had not been limited to a single evening of passion, if they had not been in two worlds, if she had not been underage and therefore jailbait, they might have had an open romance, and then her death would have touched him more deeply. A ghostly presence of pale light shimmered on the black granite. Junior looked up from the tombstone to the moon. It seemed like a wickedly sharp silver scimitar suspended by a filament more fragile than a human hair. Although it was just the moon, it unnerved him. Suddenly, the night seemed watchful. Without using his flashlight, depending only on the moon, he ascended through the cemetery to the service road. When he reached the suburban and closed his right hand around the handle on the driver's door, he felt something peculiar against his palm. A small, cold object balanced there. Startled, he snatched his hand back. The object fell, ringing faintly against the pavement. He switched on his flashlight. In the beam, on the blacktop, a silver disc, like a full moon in a night sky. A quarter. The quarter, surely. The one that had not been in his road pocket where it should have been the previous Friday. He swept the immediate area with the flashlight, and shadows spun with shadows, waltzing spirits to the ballroom of the night. No sign of vanadium. Some of the taller monuments offered hiding places on both sides of the cemetery road, as did the thicker trunks of the larger trees. The detective could be anywhere out there, or already gone. After a brief hesitation, Junior picked up the coin. He wanted to fling it into the graveyard, send it spinning far into the darkness. If Vanadium was watching, however, he would interpret the pitch of the coin to mean that his unconventional strategy was working, that Junior's nerves were frayed to the breaking point. With an adversary as indefatigable as this cuckoo cop, you dared never show weakness. Junior dropped the coin into a pants pocket. He switched off the light, listened. He half expected to hear Thomas Vanadium in the distance, softly singing someone to watch over me. After a minute, he slipped his hand into his pocket. The quarter was still there. He got in the Suburban, pulled the door shut, but didn't at once start the engine. In retrospect, coming here wasn't a wise move. Evidently, the detective had been following him. Now Vanadium would puzzle out a motive for this late night graveyard tour. Junior, putting himself in the detective's place, could think of a few reasons for this visit to Seraphim's grave. Unfortunately, not one of them supported his contention that he was an innocent man. At worst, Vanadium might begin to wonder if Junior had a link to Seraphim, might uncover the physical therapy connection, and in his paranoia, might erroneously conclude that Junior had something to do with her traffic accident. That was nuts, of course, but the detective was evidently not a rational man. At best, Vanadium might decide Junior had come here to learn what other funerals his nemesis had attended, which was, in fact, the true motivation. But this made it clear that Junior feared him and was striving to stay one step ahead of him. Innocent men didn't go to such lengths. 
As far as a fruitcake cop was concerned, Junior might as well have painted I Killed Naomi on his forehead. He nervously fingered the fabric of his slacks, outlining the quarter in his pocket. Still there. Calcimine moonlight cast an arctic illusion over the boneyard. The grass was as eerily silver as the snow at night, and gravestones tilted like pressure ridges of ice in a fractured wasteland. The black service roads seemed to come out of nowhere, and then to vanish into a void, and Junior suddenly felt dangerously isolated, alone as he had never been, and vulnerable. Vanadian was no ordinary cop, as he himself had said. In his obsession, convinced that Junior had murdered Naomi and impatient with the need to find evidence to prove it, what was to stop the detective if he decided to deal out justice himself? What was to prevent him from walking up to the Suburban right now and shooting his suspect point-blank? Junior locked the door. He started the engine and drove out of the cemetery faster than what was prudent on the winding service road. On the way home, he repeatedly checked the rearview mirror. No vehicle followed him. He lived in a rental house, a two-bedroom bungalow, enormous deodar cedars with layers of drooping branches surrounded the place, and usually they seemed sheltering, but now they loomed, ominous. Entering the kitchen from the garage, snapping on the overhead light, he was prepared to find Vanadium sitting at the pine table, enjoying a cup of coffee. The kitchen was deserted. Room by room, closet by closet, Junior conducted a search for the detective. The cop was not there. Relieved but still wary, he toured the small house again to be sure that all the doors and windows were locked. After undressing for the night, he sat on the edge of the bed for a while, rubbing the coin between the thumb and forefinger of his right hand, brooding about Thomas Vanadium. He tried rolling it across his knuckles. He dropped it repeatedly. Eventually, he put the quarter on the nightstand, switched off the lamp, and slipped into bed. He could not sleep. This morning, he had changed the sheets. Naomi's scent was no longer with him in the bedclothes. He had not yet disposed of her personal effects. In the dark, he went to the dresser, opened the drawer, and found a cotton sweater that she had worn recently. At the bed, he spread the garment across his pillow. Lying down, he pressed his face into the sweater. The sweet, subtle scent to Naomi was as effective as a lullaby, and soon he dozed off. When he woke in the morning, he raised his head from the pillow to look at the alarm clock and saw the 25 cent on his nightstand. Two dimes and a nickel. Junior flung back the covers and came to his feet, but his knees proved weak, and he sat at once on the edge of the bed. The room was bright enough for him to confirm that he was alone. The interior of the box in which Naomi now resided could be no more silent than this house. The coins were arranged atop a playing card, which lay face down. He slipped the card out from under the change, turned it over. A joker. Printed in red block letters across the car was a name. Bartholomew. Chapter 31. For the better part of a week, on doctor's orders, Agnes avoided stairs. She took sponge baths in the ground floor powder room and slept in the parlor on a sofa bed with Barty nearby in a bassinet. Maria Gonzalez brought rice casseroles, homemade tamales, and chili rientos. Daily, Jacob made cookies and brownies, always a new variety, and in such volume that Maria's place for heat would bake goods every time they were returned to her. Edom and Jacob came to dinner with Agnes every evening, and though the past weighed heavily on them when they were under this roof, 
Without fail, they stayed long enough to wash the dishes before fleeing back to their apartments over the garage. On Joey's side, there was no family to provide help. His mother had died of leukemia when he was four. His dad, fond of beer and brawling, like father, not like son, was killed in a bar fight five years later. Without close relatives willing to take him in, Joey went to an orphanage. At nine, he wasn't prime adoption material. Babies were what was wanted, and he was raised in the institution. Although relatives were in short supply, friends and neighbors of plenty stopped by to help Agnes, and some offered to stay with her at night. She gratefully accepted assistance with the house cleaning, laundry, and shopping, but declined the all-night company because of her dreams. Routinely, she dreamed of Joey. Not nightmares. No blood. No reliving of the horror. In her dreams, she was on a picnic with Joey or at a carnival with him, walking a beach, watching a movie. A warmth pervaded these scenes, an aura of companionship, love. Except eventually she always glanced away from Joey, and when she looked again, he was gone, and she knew he was gone forever. She woke weeping from the dreams, and she wanted no witnesses. She wasn't embarrassed by her tears. She just didn't want to share them with anyone but Barty. In a rocking chair, holding her tiny son in her arms, Agnes cried quietly. Often, Barty slept through her weeping. Awakened, he smiled or squinched his face into a puzzled frown. The infant's smile was so captivating and his puzzlement so comically earnest that both expressions worked on Agnes's misery as surely as yeast leavens dough. Her bitter tears turned sweet. Barty never cried. In the hospital neonatal unit, he had been a marvel to the nurses because when the other newborns were squalling in chorus, Barty had been unfailingly serene. Friday, January 14th, eight days after Joey's death, Agnes closed the sofa bed, intending to sleep upstairs from now on. And for the first time since coming home, she cooked dinner without resort to friends' casseroles or to the treasures in her freezer. Maria's mother, visiting from Mexico, was babysitting. So Maria came without her children, as a guest, joining Agnes and the laugh-a-minute Isaacson twins, chroniclers of destruction. They ate in the dining room, rather than at the kitchen dinette, with a lace-trimmed tablecloth, the good china, crystal wine glasses, and fresh flowers. Serving a formal dinner was Agnes's way of declaring to herself more than anyone else in attendance that the time had come for her to get on with her life for Bartholomew's sake, but also for her own. Maria arrived early, expecting to assist with final details in the kitchen. Though honored to be a guest, she wasn't able to stand by with a glass of wine while preparations remained to be made. Agnes at last relented. Someday, you're going to have to learn to relax, Maria. I am always enjoyed of being useful like a hammer. Hammer? Hammer, saw, screwdriver. I am always to be happy when useful in such way like tool is useful. Well, please don't use a hammer to finish setting the table. It's a joke. Maria was proud of correctly interpreting Agnes. No, I'm serious. No hammer. It's good you were joke. It's good I can joke, Agnes corrected. It's what I say. The dining table could accommodate six, and Agnes instructed Maria to set two plates on each of the long sides, leaving the ends unused. It would be cozier if we all sit across from one another. Maria arranged five place settings instead of four. The fifth, complete with silverware, water glass, and wine glass, was at the head of the table, in memoriam of Joey. 
As she struggled to cope with her loss, the last thing Agnes needed was a reminder posed by that empty chair. Maria's intentions were good, however, and Agnes didn't want to hurt her feelings. Over potato soup and an asparagus salad, the dinner conversation got off to a promising start. A discussion of favorite potato dishes, observations on the weather, talk of Mexico at Christmas. Eventually, of course, Dear Edom held forth about tornadoes. In particular, the infamous Tri-State Tornado of 1925, which ravaged portions of Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. Most tornadoes stay on the ground 20 miles or less, Edom explained. But this one kept its funnel to the earth for 219 miles, and it was one mile wide. Everything in its path, torn, smashed to bits, houses, factories, churches, schools, all pulverized. Murfreesboro, Illinois was wiped off the map, erased. Hundreds killed in that one town. Maria, wide-eyed, put down her silverware and crossed herself. It totally destroyed four towns, as if they were hit by atom bombs. Tore up parts of six more, destroyed 15,000 homes. That's just the homes. This thing was black, huge and black and hideous, with continuous lightning snapping through it, and a roar, they said, like a hundred thunderstorms booming all at once. Again, Maria crossed herself. 695 people were killed in three states, winds so powerful that some of the bodies were thrown a mile and a half from where they were snatched off the ground. Apparently, Maria wishes she had brought a rosary to dinner. With the fingers of her right hand, she pinched the knuckles of her left, one after the other, as if they were beads. Well, Agnes said, thank the Lord we don't have tornadoes here in California. We have dams, though, said Jacob, gesturing with his fork. The Johnstown Flood, 1889. Pennsylvania, sure, but it could happen here. And that was a one, let me tell you. The South Fork Dam broke. Wall of water, 70 feet high, totally destroyed the city. Your tornado killed almost 700, but my dam killed 2,209. 99 entire families were swept from the earth. 98 children lost both parents. Maria stopped praying with her knuckle rosary and resorted to a long swallow of wine. 396 of the dead were children under the age of 10, Jacob continued. A passenger van was tumbled off the track, killing 20. Another train with tank cars got smashed around and oil spilled around the floodwaters, ignited, and all those people clinging to floating debris were surrounded by flames. No way to escape. Their choice was being burned alive or drowning. Dessert? Agnes asked. Over generous slices of black forest cake and coffee, Jacob at first held forth on the explosion of a French freighter carrying a cargo of ammonium nitrate at a pier at Texas City, Texas back in 1947. 576 had perished. Mustering all her hostess skills, Agnes gradually turned the conversation from disastrous explosions to 4th of July fireworks, and then to reminiscences of summer evenings when she, Joey, Edom, and Jacob had played cards. Pinochle, Canasta, Bridge, at a table in the backyard. Jacob and Edom, paired, were formidable competitors in any card game. Because their memory for numbers had been sharpened by years of data gathering as a statistician of catastrophe. When the subject shifted to card tricks and fortune telling, Maria admitted to practicing divination with standard playing cards. Edom, eager to learn precisely when a tidal wave or falling asteroid would bring his doom, fetched a pack of cards from a cabinet in the parlor. 
When Maria explained that only every third card was red and that a full look at the future required four decks, Eden returned to the parlor to scare up three more. Bring four, Jacob called after him. All new decks. They wore out a lot of cards and kept a generous supply of all types of decks on hand. To Agnes, Jacob said, likely to be a son of your fortune if the cards are bright and fresh, don't you think? Perhaps hoping to discover which runaway freight train or exploding factory will smear him across the landscape, Jacob pushed aside his dessert plate and shuffled each deck separately, then shuffled them together until they were well mixed. He stacked them in front of Maria. No one seemed to realize that predicting this future might not be a suitable entertainment in this house, at this time, considering that Agnes has so recently and horribly been blindsided by fate. Hope was the handmaid to Agnes's faith. She always held fast to the belief that the future would be bright, and right now she was hesitant to test that optimism, even with a harmless card reading. Yet, as with the fifth place setting, she was reluctant to object. While Jacob had shuffled, Agnes had taken little Barty from his bassinet into her arms. She was surprised and discomfited to discover that the baby was to have his fortune told first. Maria turned sideways in her chair and dealt from the top of the four-deck stack onto the table in front of Barty. The first was an ace of hearts. This, Maria said, was a very good card indeed. It meant that Barty would be lucky in love. Maria set aside two cards before turning another face up. This was also an ace of hearts. Hey, he's going to be a regular Romeo, said Edom. Barty cooed and blew a spit bubble. This card to mean also was family love and his love from many friends. Not just to be kissy-kissy love, Maria elucidated. The third card that she placed in front of Barty was also an Ace of Hearts. What are the odds of that, Jacob wondered. Although the Ace of Hearts had only positive meanings, and although, according to Maria, multiple appearances, especially in sequence, meant increasingly positive things, a series of chills nonetheless riffled through Agnes's spine, as if her vertebrae were fingers shuffling. The next draw? produce four of a kind. Whereas the lone heart at the center of the rectangular white field inspired amazement and delight in her brothers and in Maria, Agnes reacted to it with dread. She strove to match her true feelings with a smile as thin as the edge of a playing card. In her fractured English, Maria explained that this miraculous fourth ace of heart meant that Barty would not only meet the right woman and have a lifelong romance worthy of epic poetry, would not only be showered all his life by the love of family, would not only be cherished by a large number of friends, but would also be loved by uncountable people who would never meet him. How can he be loved by people who never meet him? asked Jacob, scowling. Beaming, Maria said, this to mean Barty will to be one day Mui famous. Agnes wanted her boy to be happy. She didn't care about fame. Instinct told her the two, fame and happiness, seldom coexisted. She had been gently dandling Barty. Now she held him still and kept him close to her breast. The fifth card was another ace, and Agnes gasped, because for an instant she thought it was also another heart, an impossible fifth in a stack of four decks. Instead, an ace of diamonds. Maria explained that this, too, was the most desirable card, that it meant Barty would never be poor. To have it follow four aces of hearts would be especially significant. The sixth card was another ace of diamonds. They all stared at it in silence. Six aces in a row, thus far consecutive as the suit. 
Agnes had no way of calculating the odds against this draw, but she knew they were spectacularly high. It's to mean he is to be better than not poor, but even rich. The seventh card was the third ace of diamonds. Without comment, Maria set aside two cards and dealt the eighth. This, too, was an ace of diamonds. Maria crossed herself, but in a different spirit from when she had crossed herself during Edom's rant about the tri-state tornado of 1925. Then, she had been warding off bad fortune. Now, with a smile and a look of wonder, she was acknowledging the grace of God, which, according to the cards, had been settled generously on Bartholomew. Barty, she explained, would be rich in many ways. Financially rich, but also rich in talent, in spirit, intellect, rich in courage, honor, with a wealth of common sense, good judgment, and luck. Any mother ought to be pleased to hear such a glowing future foretold for her child. Yet each glorious prediction dropped the temperature in Agnes's heart by another few degrees. The ninth card was a jack of spades. Maria called it a knave of spades, and at the sight of it, her bright smile dimmed. Knaves symbolize enemies, she explained, both those who were merely duplicitous and those who were downright evil. The knave of hearts represented either a rival in love or a lover who would betray you, an enemy who would deeply wound the heart. The knave of diamonds was someone who would cause financial grief. The knave of clubs was someone who would wound with words, one who libeled or slandered, or who assaulted you a mean-spirited and unjust criticism. The knave of spades, now revealed, was the most sinister jack in the deck. This was an enemy who would resort to violence. With his ringleted yellow hair, coiled mustache, and haughty right profile, this was a jack that looked as if he might be a knave in the worst sense of the word. And now, to the tenth card, already in Maria's small brown hand. Never had the familiar red bicycle design of the U.S. playing card company looked ominous before. But it was fearsome now, as strange as any voodoo vave or satanic conjuration pattern. Maria's hand turned, the card turned, and another knave of spades revolved into view, snapped against the table. Drawn one after the other, two knaves of spades didn't signify two deadly enemies, but meant that the enemy already predicted by the first draw would be unusually powerful, exceptionally dangerous. Agnes knew now what his prognostication had dismayed rather than charmed her. If you dared to believe in the good fortune predicted by the cards, then you were obliged to believe in the bad as well. In her arms, little Barty burbled contentedly, unaware that his destiny supposedly included epic love, fabulous riches, and violence. He was so innocent. This sweet boy, this pure and stainless infant, couldn't possibly have an enemy in the world. And she could not imagine any son of hers earning enemies, not as she raised him well. This was nonsense, just a silly card reading. Agnes meant to stop Maria from turning the eleventh card, but her curiosity was equal to her apprehension. When the third knave of spades appeared, Edom said to Maria, What kind of enemy does three in a row describe? She remained fixated on the card that she had just dealt, and for a while she didn't speak as though the eyes of the paper knave held her in thrall. Finally, she said, Monster. Human monster. Jacob nervously cleared his throat. <clears throat> and what if it's four jacks in a row? Her brother's solemnity irritated Agnes. 
They appeared to be taking this reading seriously, as though it was far more than just a little after-dinner entertainment. Admittedly, she had allowed herself to be disturbed by the fall of the cards, too. According to them, any credibility at all opened the door to full belief. The odds against this phenomenal 11-card draw must be many millions of one, which seem to give the predictions validity. Not every coincidence, however, has meaning. Toss a quarter one million times, roughly half a million heads will turn up, roughly the same number of tails. In the process, there'll be instances where heads turn up 30, 40, 100 times in a row. This does not mean that destiny is at work or that God, choosing not to be merely his usual mysterious self but utterly inscrutable, is warning of Armageddon through the medium of the quarter. It means that the laws of probability hold true only in the long run and that short-run anomalies are meaningful only to the gullible. And what if it's four jacks in a row? At last, Maria answered Jacob's question in a murmur. Making the sign of the cross once more, she spoke. Never saw four. Never even just I see three, but four is, four is to be the devil himself. This decoration was received seriously by Edom and Jacob, as if the devil often strolled the streets of Bright Beach and from time to time had been known to snatch little babies from their mother's arms and eat them with mustard. Even Agnes was briefly unnerved to the extent that she said, Enough of this. It's not fun anymore. In agreement, Maria pushed a stack of unused cards aside, and she peered at her hands as she wanted to scrub them for a long time under hot water. No, Agnes said, shaking loose the grip of her rational fear. Wait, this is absurd. It's just a card, and we're all curious. No, Maria warned. I don't need to see it, Edom agreed. Or me, said Jacob. Agnes pulled the stack of cards in front of her. She discarded the first two, as Maria would have done, and turned over the third. Here was the final nail of spades. As though a cold current crackled along the cable of her spine, Agnes smiled at the card. She was determined to change the dark mood that descended over them. Doesn't look so spooky to me. She turned the nail of spades so the baby could see it. Does he scare you, Barty? Bartholomew had been able to focus his eyes much sooner than the average baby was supposed to be able to focus. To a surprising extent, he was already engaged in the world around him. Now Barty peered at the card, smacked his lips, smiled, and said, Gah! With a flatulent squawk of the butt trumpet, he soiled his diaper. Everyone except Maria laughed. Tossing the knave onto the table, Agnes said, Barty doesn't seem to impress with this devil. Maria gathered up the four jacks and tore them into thirds. She put the twelve pieces in the breast pocket of her blouse. I'll buy to you new cards, but no more ever can you be having these. Chapter 32 Money for the Dead The decomposing flesh of a beloved wife and an unborn baby transmuted into a fortune was an achievement that put to shame the alchemist's dream of turning lead to gold. On Tuesday, less than 24 hours after Naomi's funeral, Knacker, Hiscus, and Nork, representing the state and the county, held preliminary meetings with Junior's lawyer and with the attorney of the grieving Hackachat clan. As before, the well-tailored trio was conciliatory, sensitive, and willing to reach an accommodation to prevent the filing of a wrongful death suit. In fact, attorneys for the potential plaintiffs felt that Nork, Hiskis, and Knacker were too willing to reach an accommodation, and they met the trio's conciliation with high suspicion. Naturally, 
The state didn't want to defend against a claim involving the death of a beautiful young bride and her unborn baby, but their willingness to negotiate so early from such a reasonable posture implied that their position was even weaker than it appeared to be. Junior's attorney, Simon Magidson, insisted upon full disclosure of maintenance records and advisories relating to the fire tower and other forest service structures for which the state and county had sole or joint custodial responsibility. If a wrongful death suit was filed, this information would have to be divulged anyway during normal disclosure procedures prior to trial. And since maintenance logs and advisories were a public record, Hiskis and Nacker and Nork agreed to provide what was requested. Meanwhile, as attorneys met on Tuesday afternoon, Junior, having taken leave from work, phoned a locksmith to change the locks at his house. As a cop, Vanadium might have access to a lock release gun that could spring the new deadbolts as easily as the old. Therefore, on the interior of the front and back doors, Junior added sliding bolts, which couldn't be picked from outside. He paid cash to the locksmith, and included in the payment were the two dimes and a nickel the vanadium had left on his nightstand. Wednesday, with a swiftness that confirmed his eagerness to make a deal, the state supplied records on the fire tower. For five years, a significant portion of the maintenance funds had been diverted by bureaucrats to other uses. And for three years, the responsible maintenance supervisor had filed an annual report on this specific tower requesting immediate funds for fundamental reconstruction. The third of these documents, submitted 11 months prior to Naomi's fall, was composed in crisis language and stamped urgent. Sitting in Simon Magison's mahogany panel office, reading the contents of this file, Junior was aghast. I could have been killed. It's a miracle both of you didn't go through that railing, the attorney agreed. Magison was a small man behind a huge desk. His head appeared too large from his body, but his ears seemed no bigger than a pair of silver dollars. Large protuberant eyes, bulging with shrewdness and feverish with ambition, marked him as one who would be hungry a minute after standing up from a day-long feast. A button nose too severely turned up at the tip, an upper lip long enough to rival that of an orangutan, and a mean slash of a mouth completed a portrait sure to repel anyone with eyesight. But if you wanted an attorney who was angry at the world for being cursed with ugliness, and who would convert that anger into the energy and ruthlessness of a pit bull in the courtroom, even while using his unfortunate looks to gain the juror's sympathy, then Simon Magison was a counselor for you. It isn't just the rotten railing, Junior said, still paging through the report, his outrage growing. The stairs are unsafe. Delightful, isn't it? One of the four legs of the tower is dangerously fractured where it's seated into the underlying foundation casing. Lovely. And the undergirding of the observation platform itself is unstable. The whole thing could have fallen down with us on it. From across the vast acreage of the desk came a goblin cackle, Magasin's idea of a laugh. And they didn't even bother to post a warning. In fact, that sign was still up, inviting hikers to enjoy the view from the observation desk. I could have been killed, Junior Kane repeated, suddenly so horror-struck by this realization that an iciness welled in his gut, and for a while he wasn't able to feel its extremities. This is going to be an enormous settlement, the attorney promised, and there's more good news. County and state authorities have agreed to close the case on Naomi's death. It's now officially an accident. Feeling began to return to Junior's hands and feet. As long as the case was open and you were the sole suspect, said the lawyer, they couldn't negotiate an out-of-court settlement with you. But they were afraid that if eventually they couldn't prove you killed her, then they'd be in an even worse position when a wrongful death suit finally went before a jury. Why? 
For one thing, jurors might conclude that the authorities never really suspected you and tried to frame you for murder to conceal their culpability in the poor maintenance of the tower. By far, most of the cops think you're innocent anyway. Really? That's gratifying, Junior said sincerely. Congratulations, Mr. Kane. You've had a lot of luck in this. Although he found Magnuson's face sufficiently disturbing that he avoided looking at it more than necessary, and though Magnuson's bulging eyes were so moist with bitterness and with need that they inspired nightmares, Junior shifted his gaze from his half-nub hands to his attorney. Luck? I lost my wife and my unborn baby. And now you'll be properly compensated for your loss. The Popeye little toad smirked over there on the far side of his pretentious desk. The report on the tower forced Junior to consider his mortality. Fear, hurt, and self-pity roiled in him. His voice trembled with offense. You do know, Mr. Magison, that what happened to my Naomi was an accident. You do believe that. Because I don't see... I don't know how I could work with someone who thought I was capable of. The runt was so out of proportion to his office furniture that he appeared to be a bug perched in the giant leather executive chair which itself looked like the maw of Venus's flytrap about to swallow him for lunch. He allowed such a lengthy silence to follow Junior's question that by the time he answered, his reply was superfluous. Finally, a trial lawyer, whether specializing in criminal or civil matters, is like an actor, Mr. Kane. He must believe deeply in his role, in the truth of his portrayal, if he's be convincing. I always believe in the innocence of my clients in order to achieve the best possible settlement for them. Junior suspected Magnuson never had any client but himself. Fat fees motivated him, not justice. As a matter of principle, Junior considered firing the slip-mouthed troll on the spot. But then Magnuson said, You shouldn't be bothered any further by Detective Vanadium. Junior was surprised. You know about him? Everyone knows about Vanadium. He's a crusader, a self-appointed champion of truth, justice, and the American way. A holy fool, if you will. With the case closed, he has no authority to harass you. I'm not sure he needs authority, Junior said uneasily. Well, if he bothers you again, just let me know. Why do they let a man like that keep his badge, Junior asked. He's outrageous, wholly unprofessional. He's successful. He solves most of the cases assigned to him. Junior had thought most of the other policemen must consider Vanadium to be a loose cannon, a rogue, an outcast. Perhaps the opposite was true, and if it was, Vanadium was highly regarded amongst his peers. He was immeasurably more dangerous than Junior had realized. Mr. Kane, if he bothers you, would you want me to have his choke chain yanked? He couldn't remember on which principle he had considered firing Magison. In spite of his faults, the attorney was highly competent. By the close of business tomorrow, said the lawyer, I expect to have an offer for your consideration. Late Thursday, following a nine-hour session with Hiskus, Nork, and Knacker, Magison, negotiating in conjunction with the Hackachack Council, had indeed reached acceptable terms. Caitlin Hackachack will receive $250,000 for the loss of her sister. Sheena and Rudy will receive $9,000 to compensate them for their severe emotional pain and suffering. This allowed them to undergo a lot of therapy in Las Vegas. Junior will receive $4,250,000. Magnuson's fee was 20% prior to trial. 40% of a settlement had been reached after the start of court proceedings, which left Junior with $3,400,000. All 
all payments to plaintiffs were net of taxes. Friday morning, Junior resigned his position as physical therapist at the Rehabilitation Hospital. He expected to live well off interest and dividends for the rest of his life because his tastes were modest. Glorying in the cloudless day and the warmer than usual weather, he drove 70 miles north through phalanxes of evergreens that marched down the steep hills to the scenic coast. All the way, he monitored the traffic in his rearview mirror. No one followed him. He stopped for lunch at a restaurant with a spectacular view of the Pacific, framed by massive pines. His waitress was a cutie. She flirted with him, and he knew he could have her if he wanted. He wanted all right, but intuition warned him that he ought to continue to be discreet for a while longer. He hadn't seen Thomas Vanadium since Monday at the cemetery, and Vanadium hadn't pulled any tricks since leaving 25 cents at his bedside that same night. Almost four days undisturbed by the Hectoring detective. In matters of vanadium, however, Junior had learned to be wary, prudent. With no job to return to, he dawdled over lunch. He was actually to mess with the growing sense of freedom that was as thrilling as sex. Life was too short to waste it working if you had the means to afford lifelong leisure. By the time he got back to Spruce Hills, the early night had fallen. The pearly, waxing moon floated over a town that glimmered mysteriously through a richness of trees flickering and shimmering as though it were not a real town, but a dreamland where a multitude of clans gathered by the lambent amber light of lanterns and campfires. Earlier in the week, Junior had looked up Thomas Vanadium in the telephone directory. He expected the number to be unlisted, but it was published. What he wanted more than a number was an address, and he found that as well. Now he dared to search out the detective's residence. In a neatly groomed neighborhood of unassuming houses, Vanadium's house is as unremarkable as those around it. A single-story rectangular box of no discernible architectural style. White aluminum siding with green shutters. An attached two-car garage. Deciduous black oaks lined the street. All were leafless at this time of year, gnarled limbs clawing at the moon. The big trees on Vanadium's property also stood bare, allowing a relatively unobstructed view of his house. The back of the residence was dark, but a soft light warmed two windows at the front. Junior didn't slow as he passed the house, but circled the block and drove by the place again. He didn't know what he was looking for. He simply felt empowered to be the one conducting the surveillance for a change. Less than 15 minutes later, at home, he sat at his kitchen table with the telephone directory. The book included not only the phones in Spruce Hills, but also those in the entire county, maybe 70 or 80,000. Each page comprised four columns of names and numbers, most with addresses. Approximately 100 names filled each column, 400 to a page. Using the straight edge of a ruler to guide his eyes down each column, Junior searched for Bartholomew, ignoring surnames. He had already checked to see if anyone in the county had Bartholomew for a last name. No one in this directory did. Some listings didn't include first names, only initials. Every time he came across the initial B, he put a red check mark beside it with a fine point felt tip pin. Most of these were going to be Bobs or Bills. Maybe a few were Bradleys or Bernards, Barbers or Brendas. Eventually, when he had gone through the entire directory, if he had had no success, he would phone each red check listing and ask for Bartholomew. A few hundred calls, no doubt. Some would involve long distance charges, but he could afford the toll. He was able to search five pages at a sitting before his head began to ache. 
He had been putting in two sessions a day starting this past Tuesday. 4,000 names a day. 16,000 total when he finished a fifth of this evening's pages. This was tedious work and might not bear fruit. He needed to begin somewhere, however, and the telephone directory was the most logical starting point. Bartholomew might be a teenager living with his parents or a dependent adult residing with family. If so, he wouldn't be revealed in this search because the phone would not be listed in his name. Or maybe the guy loathed his first name and never used it except in legal matters, going by his middle name instead. If the directory proved to be a no-help, Junior would proceed next to the registry office at the county courthouse to review the records of births going back to the turn of the century if necessary. Bartholomew, of course, might not have been born in the county. He might have been moved here as a child or an adult. If he owned property, he'd show up on the register of deeds. Whether a landowner or not, if he did a civic duty every two years, he would appear on the voter rolls. Junior no longer had a job, but he had a mission. Saturday and Sunday, between sessions with the directory, Junior cruised around the county on a series of pleasure drives, testing the theory that the maniac cop was no longer following him. Apparently, Simon Magison was correct. The case had been closed. As well-begone a widower as anyone could expect, Junior spent every night home alone. By Sunday, he had slept without companionship eight nights since being discharged from the hospital. Eight nights, y'all. He was a virile young man, desired by many, and life was short. Poor Naomi, her lovely face and her look at shock still fresh in his memory, was a constant reminder of how suddenly the end could come. No one was guaranteed tomorrow. Seize the day. Caesar Zed recommended not merely seizing the day, but devouring it. Chew it up. Feed on the day. Swallow the day whole. Feast, said Zed. Feast. Approach life as a gourmet and as a glutton, because he who practices restraint will have stored up no sustaining memories when famine inevitably comes. By Sunday evening, a combination of factors, deep commitment to the philosophy of Zed, explosive testosterone levels, boredom, self-pity, and a desire to be a risk-taking man of action once more, motivated Junior to splash a little high karate behind each ear and go courting. Shortly after sunset, with a single red rose and a bottle of Merlot, he set off for Victoria Bressler's place. He phoned her before leaving to make sure she was home. She didn't work weekend shifts at the hospital, but maybe she would have gone out on this night off. When she answered, he recognized her seductive voice and devilishly muttered, wrong number. Ever the romantic, he wanted to surprise her. Voila, flowers, wine, and moi. Since their electrifying connection in the hospital, she had been yearning for him, but she wouldn't expect a visit for a few weeks yet. He was eager to see her face brighten with delight. During the past week, he had ferreted out what he could about the nurse. She was 30, divorced, without kids, and lived alone. He had been surprised to learn her age. She didn't appear to be that old. 30 or not, Victoria was unusually attractive. Charmed by the vulnerability of the young, he had never slept with an older woman. The prospect intrigued him. She would have tricks in her repertoire that the younger women were too inexperienced to know. Junior could only imagine how flattered Victoria would be to receive the attention of a 23-year-old stud, flattered and grateful. When he contemplated all the ways she could express that gratitude, there was barely enough room behind the will of the suburban for him and his manhood. In spite of the urgency of his desire, he followed a securitous route to Victoria's, doubling back on himself twice, watching for surveillance as he drove. 
If he were being followed, his tail was an invisible man in a ghost car. Nevertheless, being cautious even as he sees the day, or the night in this case, he parked a short distance from his destination on a parallel street. He walked the last three blocks. The January air was crisp, fragrant with evergreens and with the faint salty scent of the distant sea. A curiously yellow moon glowered like a malevolent eye, studying him from between ragged ravelings of dirty clouds. Victoria lived on the northeast edge of Spruce Hills, where streets peter in the country lanes. Here, the houses tended to be more rustic, built on larger and less formally landscaped lots than those closest to the center of town, and set back farther from the street. During Junior's brief stroll, the sidewalk ended, giving way to the gravel shoulder of the road. He saw no one on foot, and no vehicles passed him. At this extreme end of town, no street lamps lit the pavement. With only moonlight to reveal him, he wasn't likely to be recognized if anyone happened to glance out of a window. If Junior was not discreet, and if gossip about the widower Kane and the sexy nurse began to circulate, Vanadium would be on the case again even if it had been closed. The cop was sick, hateful, driven by unknowable inner demons. Although he might for the moment have been reined in by those in higher office, mere gossip of a spicy nature would be enough for him to open the file again which he surely do without informing his superiors. Victoria lived in a narrow two-story clapboard residence with a steeply pitched roof. A pair of overlarge dormers, projecting to an unusual degree, beetled over the front porch. The place belonged in a block of row homes in a working-class neighborhood in some drab eastern city, not here. Golden lamplight gilded the front windows downstairs. He would sit with Victoria on the living room sofa sipping wine as they got to know each other. She might even tell him to call her Vicky, and maybe he'd ask her to call him Eni, the affectionate name Naomi had given him when he wouldn't tolerate Enoch. Soon, they'll be necking like two crazy kids. Junior would disrobe her on the sofa, caressing her smooth, pliant body, her skin buttery in the lamplight. Then he would carry her, naked, to the dark bedroom upstairs. Avoiding the gravel driveway, on which he was more likely to scuff his freshly polished loafers, he approached the house across the lawn, beneath the moon-sifting branches of a great pine that made itself useless for Christmas by spreading as majestically as an oak. He supposed Victoria might have a visitor, perhaps a relative or a girlfriend. Not a man, no. She knew who her man was, and she would have no other while she waited for the chance to surrender to him and to consummate the relationship that had begun with the spoon in the ice in the hospital ten days previously. Most likely, if Victoria was entertaining, the visitor's car would have been parked in the driveway. Junior considered slipping quietly around the house, peering in windows to make sure she was alone before approaching directly. If she saw him, however, his wonderful surprise would be spoiled. Nothing in life was risk-free, so he hesitated only a moment at the foot of the porch steps before climbing them and knocking on the door. Music played within, an up-tempo number. Possibly swing. He couldn't quite identify the tune. As Junior was about to knock again, the door flew inward, and over Sinatra having fun with When My Sugar Walks Down the Street, Victoria said, You're early. I didn't hear your car. She was speaking as she pulled the door open and she cut herself off in mid-sentence when she stepped up to the threshold and saw who stood before her. She looked surprised all right, but her expression wasn't the one the junior had painted on the canvas of his imagination. 
Her surprise had no delight in it, and she didn't at once break into a radiant smile. In an instant, she appeared to be frowning. Then he realized this couldn't be a frown. It must be a smoldering look of desire. In tailored black pants and a form-hugging apple-green cotton sweater, Victoria Bressler fulfilled all the voluptuous promise that Junior had suspected lay under her looser-fitting nurse's uniform. The v-neck sweater suggested a glorious depth of cleavage, though only a tasteful hint of it was on display. Nothing about this beauty could be called cheap. What do you want? she asked. Her voice was flat and a little hard. Another man might have mistaken her tone for disapproval, for impatience, even for quiet anger. Junior knew that she must be teasing him. Her sense of play was delicious. Such deviltry in her scintillant blue eyes, such sauciness. He held forth the single red rose. For you. Not that it compares. No flower could. Still relishing her little pretense of rejection, Victoria did not touch the rose. What kind of woman do you think I am? The exquisite kind, he replied, glad that he had read so many books on the art of seduction and therefore knew precisely the right thing to say. Grimacing, she said, I told the police about your disgusting little come on with the ice spoon. Thrusting the red rose at her again, insistently pressing it against her hand to distract her, Junior swung the Merlot, and just as Sinatra sang the word sugar with the bounce, the bottle smacked Victoria in the center of her forehead. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, Lee Review on Spotify, Lee Review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast, copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. Uh, you could donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you